again, every hour, on the hour, huffing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on the hour. KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. It's a weekly look at the role of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. On today's show, pigeons, smoke, and the nor'easter. Also joining us is Tyson Mao to talk about solving the Rubik's Cube. So stay tuned for all this here on the Grok Science Show. Well, joining us again are Terry Yan and Vikram Kokarni with the best in this week's rural science. Uh, Terry, take it away. Oh, so um, some researchers in Germany found out how homing pigeons find their way around. I mean, I remember reading about how people have been very interested in uh, figuring out how birds are able to, you know how those migratory birds who right. migrate in the south and right. they always go to the same place, I suppose, Right. how they're able to find their way around. Right. I thought they can sense the magnetic fields and sort of remember Yeah, that. yeah, right. but then nobody was able to actually have any conclusive evidence until right. now. So mm-hmm. they, some, you know, the researchers in Germany found that these homing pigeons, they call them biological magnetometers. Uh-huh. So basically, on either side of these pigeons' tiny beaks, the skin has these iron-containing nerves and then bilateral dendritic fields that have 3D orientation. Wow. So they used micro X-ray absorption near-edge structure spectroscopy, which I actually did not know you can actually use that mm-hmm. on biological, like, birds. I mean, it's still oh. funny because the only um, contact I've ever had with that type of spectroscopy is the work that's done here right. by Rich Sakely, mm-hmm. and they do it on, like, water to see what the structure of water is, like how yeah. much hydrogen bonding, but... Yeah. They've definitely extended this to some practical applications. It's pretty cool. Anyway, so they used this microcyclotron X-ray absorption near-edge structure spectroscopy, and they found that uh, these the skin on the pigeon's beaks is 90% magamite and 10% magnetite. 
which okay. I can imagine are the iron-containing compounds. So uh, magnetite is basically sort of like uh, iron oxide, but like in nanocrystalline form, right? Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And actually, that was, or I guess the first characterization was done by um, Joe Kirschwing down at Caltech. Oh, cool. Where they actually were able to um, see the structures and have pictures of it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So that was the first evidence that, you know, uh, animals could have these magnetic particles that were able to sense uh how big are you know, these particles i think they're like extremely tiny probably like you know maybe on a nanometer scale so so i suppose it's just they're all connected right like polymer like no they would be crystals but they would oh. align like i guess there must be some organ that would somehow be able to oh, translate they just contain that into, a lot and yeah. then i see yeah, they have to be aligned in a way for it to actually have magnetic effect particles Oh, yeah, yeah, So they, mm-hmm. this is what they speculate. They speculate mm-hmm. that these magamite and magnetite particles, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, they align perpendicularly to the Earth's magnetic field. Right. And then they trigger these strain-sensitive membrane channels uh-huh. that can separately sense the vector components of the Earth's... Uh, the XYZ? Yeah, the XYZ <laughs> components of the uh-huh. Earth's... Um, magnetic field uh-huh. and somehow use that information <laughs> to direct so, so their way. So they've got way. their own little gyroscopic so, uh, system. Yeah, uh-huh. it's kind of cool. GPS. Yeah, so basically their like GPS one, system. one system that actually crosses the, the, the Earth's field and the other one that's sort of a reader of this cross. Well, no, I think what happens is that um, these two iron... I don't know why they need magamite and magnetite. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, okay. It's a mixture of 90% magamite with 10% magnetite. And Coca-Cola. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, and then yeah. Uh, these particles just feel out the Earth's magnetic field, so then they align perpendicularly to it. And then, I guess, as they're aligning themselves to it, they must be uh, attached to strain-sensitive membrane channels. I don't wow. know, and then okay. somehow triggers uh-huh. that. There must be receptors. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That's really fascinating. Some sort of pathway, yeah. I suppose. Uh-huh. And then, um, yeah, and then these membrane channels would be triggered, and then maybe some sort of sodium potassium you know kind of like behavior you know ions concentrations changing right. in these channels i don't know just for for interpretation purposes that that's what actually yeah. simply interprets how how you are yeah so somehow changing. maybe there's some sort of ion concentration change in these channels some things are let out other things are let in mm-hmm. and through that they're able to gather the xyz components of where they are which wow. is really impressive. That's, I mean, this all yeah. happens. Very advanced. I think I know. Advanced On humans. a freaking bird. I mean, I can't. No, we can't fly or detect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess this gives new meaning to that's right. to the phrase "bird brain." I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we're that's not that one. stupid. That's a good one. Yeah. I mean, they're, and so, I mean, that means they, they go down to the, I mean, you know, this is like a GPS, so they're they yeah. doing a very accurate oh, feed very to where accurate, they're going yeah. mm-hmm. It's not like they're going in the general area or yeah, something. Yeah, and like unlike that. our GPS system, which, you know, will get you lost if That's they right, don't get updated. <laughs> 15 meters These off, birds yeah. make their way to their southern, you know, wintry homes or whatever quite successfully. Yeah, and, and they, I mean, they, they do it, obviously, if, now it's very clear that they're not like, trying or doing any trial and error methods they're just getting this straight up yeah yeah i'm sure there was some trial error back in the day but now they've perfected it okay so if anyone wants to find out more about these bird brains um i think it was in last month's issue of cne news okay very cool
So guys, I just want to thank you for not smoking. <laughs> you don't smoke, right? Yeah, I don't. But you know, yeah, I get, I get the, the, the urge, the fun, whatever. <laughs> oh, the pun, right, right. <laughs> uh, but so it, it turns out now that the trend around the world is, you know, smoke-free, and um, that's just really picking up. And in fact, uh, it's been documented in a New England Journal of Medicine um, by some researchers at Harvard. And um, basically, I, I guess they pinpoint to Ireland's uh, pioneering uh, ban back in 2004, uh, which sort of culminated in this whole worldwide movement. And to date, uh, I guess there are 17 U.S. states. Most of Australia and Canada now have uh, smoke-free zones uh, in public places. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. In public places. In public places. That's pretty good. So, so I mean, in California, it's pretty oh. strict, actually. Yeah. You know, we have yep. um, restaurants and... Uh, All right. Government buildings are not supposed to. Bars are not supposed to. In Bars, California. okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. like that is pretty straight. Yeah. All right, so strike one for uh, smoking, smoking, I guess. Well, hmm. good for cool. us. We'll probably all live longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Everything will smell better. So guys, guess what? I was in Connecticut for the last five weeks. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow! Did you uh, see the Easter Bunny? Uh, no, I didn't see the Easter Bunny, but uh, at the same time, I did experience a nor'easter. A nor'easter? Yeah. What's a nor'easter? A nor'easter is something that freaks out the East Coast. Uh-huh. Let me tell you that. Does uh, it happen regularly, or is it uh, kind of it's, unusual? It's usually a phenomenon that happens anytime between October to April. But okay. what it is really is, is a big storm, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, the science apart, what it really does is it dumps heavy amounts of snow and rain. Oh, yeah. That's what in... happened. Because I was supposed to go to Spain the end of March. Uh-huh. And my my plane flight was canceled because right. of this nor'easter. Easter, right. And, and <laughs> oh, they all, so and angry. People take it seriously, not because they're always that strong, but when they come in, you know, it's that people have very strong memories of some really bad ones in the oh past. Oh, my gosh. Hmm. And what it does is not only does it bring in a lot of rain and snow, but it brings in with the hurricane-force winds, even oh, though there is no geez. official hurricane, uh-huh. and causes a lot of damage, basically. Uh-huh. And I guess... Uh, it sounds a, terrible. Yep. It, it, it <gasps> sounds terrible. It wasn't as bad this time around when I was there. Uh, there was a lot of wind. I remember the wind was really high, uh-huh. and there was heavy rain, but... Uh, an occasional like uh, you know like ice that kind of sleeting rain. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh! Uh, but but that's about it. Nothing worse than that. How but, do you get to work? I mean, can you drive? Uh, people, do they cancel work? Uh, I know. Do you have work. five <laughs> weeks York. of uh, <laughs> nor'easter yep. off days? <laughs> New York doesn't stop. They don't stop for anything. But wow. they had a lot of things going on. I know Bloomberg was on the on like TV and radio all day talking about. You know, flood shelters and this and that. But wow. New York City wasn't that hurt. But I think Long Island and a lot of further, you know, towns further east, mm-hmm. uh, like oh, Hampton and so stuff, it... they were hit pretty hard. I see. Um, there was some flooding uh, up in the upstate New York as well. But I think they fared pretty well. Uh, but what really happens in the nor'easter is I think uh, they get uh, really warm winds happening along the Atlantic coast in the south towards Florida, Carolinas okay. kind of places. Right. And what happens is uh, 
you have a strong northeast wind along the edge of this formation. And so it kind of drives the storm up all along the coast. Uh-huh. And then it meets with the Arctic winds coming in oh, from Canada. I see. And there is that, that collision of winds. And then oh that's God, when the sucks. whole hurricane winds take off. And then you get this big storms coming in. Mm-hmm. And it usually lasts for a while. That's the thing. The flooding builds on each other. So Holy it was interesting. Moly. The storm itself wasn't so bad. But you could see people essentially freaked out because I people have be. strong memories people are especially in the outlying areas they're ready for flooding people get their boats out people oh my get out of their houses mm-hmm. it's it's like they, they respond to it like they would respond to a hurricane well, very interesting I, I remember last summer i was actually um interning at dc and you know it was like the beginning of july and there's a flash flood in the middle of july <laughs> seven inches rain on one day what oh everything was soaked the metro was um flooded Oh my God! Yeah, in one day, and then the next day everything was just you know all beautiful sunny sunny sky. What the heck? Yeah, and it happened a couple times. It was very. This is why I'm staying on the West Coast. That's right. I have no desire to go to the East Coast. Uh, I was in Los Angeles for one year. They shut everything down when it rained half an inch. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That's how I feel. They, yeah. they they can't handle even basic rain. I don't know what they're what they're gonna basic do. Basic rain. Yeah. <laughs> level one. Yeah, level one rain. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's cool. it's interesting. Yeah. Watch out for those rains. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, Terry and Vikram. And of course, that was the latest update in the world of science and technology this week. This is the Grok Science Show you're listening to. In a few moments, Tyson Mao joins us to talk about mastering the Rubik's. So stay right there. We have a very special guest today, a uh, problem solver of a different type. Joining us today is Mr. Tyson Mao, who founded the Rhodes Cube Association. And it's a distinct pleasure for me to welcome a fellow alumni from Caltech. Uh, Mr. Mao received his degree in astrophysics and now uh, is working in Los Angeles. Uh, Mr. Mao, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So I understand uh, you've been involved uh, deeply with the uh, Rubik's Cube 
you know, as a puzzle and also as an association. Uh, could you tell us how you got interested in this game and, uh, you know, what is it like to uh, solve these puzzles? Certainly. Um, I first learned to solve the Rubik's Cube on July 24, 2003. It was a Thursday evening, and my brother had come home from a summer camp. I was working at Stanford that day uh, during that time, and I had a day off. So I went home, and my younger brother taught me how to solve the Rubik's Cube. It took about two hours, and afterwards I had a, a sheet of paper with a couple notes scribbled on there, and I could solve the Rubik's Cube in about five to ten minutes. Um, after that, you know, my time just rapidly decreased because I was cute. I was solving the Rubik's Cube all the time and just practicing. And now uh, I'm not really in shape too too well right now because I've been working a lot. But uh, my I can average around 17 seconds on the Rubik's Cube. And it's just a fun thing to do for me, um, just being able to solve the puzzle. Um, it's, you know, it's very addicting, both mentally and physically. Wow, you must be a really fast learner then. Tell me, what is it like when you're... Um solving the cube, is it, does it come intuitively for you, or does it take a lot of thought in trying to move the pieces? Well, for anyone to learn how to solve the cube, uh, it certainly wasn't intuitive for me. My, it was my younger brother who told me what to do, exactly what to do in certain situations. So I did not figure out the Rubik's Cube on my own. Now, pretty much, I've solved the Rubik's Cube so many times, the patterns that show up on a Rubik's Cube are very innate, and I recognize them very quickly. And my fingers uh, have been trained, you know, muscle memory just over uh, many hours of practice that um, I don't actually have to think very much while I solve the Ruby's Cube. Great, and I understand you've also uh, done this blindfolded. Um, actually, I guess several people in the world have also done the same thing. What exactly is that like? Solving the Ruby's Cube blindfolded involves memorizing the Ruby's Cube first, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, solving it, making all the turns without looking at the Ruby's Cube again. Um, it's a lot of fun. Mentally, it's a lot more taxing. You have to keep track of a lot of different colors and positions in your head. Um, but uh, I'll say the first time uh, anyone solves a Ruby's Cube blindfolding, it's just this amazing feeling where, you know, you're used to seeing this puzzle messed up, and then you open your eyes and it's all one solid color. It's, it's really amazing. The, the puzzles that you saw, are these these the 4x4x4s, four by four by or, or uh, what, what size do I you work with? I the standard 3x3x3 three by three by three Ruby's Cube, mostly. Okay. And, you know, there's different variations out there. Uh, what other flavors um, have you tried? Um, there are two larger sizes, the 4x4x4 four by four by four and the 5x5x5. Five by five by five. Uh -huh. I solve those before, but I don't really, um, I don't really do those too much. Okay. Uh, and then there are a whole different variety of sorts of puzzles. Some don't really even stay in the shape of a cube. Uh, but uh, I mostly focus on the 3x3x3 Rubik's Cube. Um, so looking back, you know, how has your um, training in math helped you to solve these problems, does it help you to visualize them better or, uh, you know, um, abstract? Not at all. Uh, learning to solve the Ruby's Cube had nothing to do with math for me. It was really, and I think this is just, I think this is true for most people, um, just if you're going to learn the Ruby's Cube, you know, from a website, you just pretty much learn the set of instructions. You, there's no math required. You don't need to understand, you know, the group theory or the commutators behind <laughs> everything to solve the Rubik's Cube. You can right. just follow the instructions and solve it. And so that's how I approached it. I didn't really consider the mathematical aspect until later. Okay, cool. And, um, you know, what um, What are your expectations for future competitions? Do you, you know, foresee any new tricks or new developments going on? I actually haven't been focusing too much in terms of my Rubik's Cube career. Uh, I've been working a very uh, intense job now, and it takes up most of my time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, you know, what, what the future holds in terms of the Rubik's Cube, I can't really say. Um, I mean, it's not something I'll give up, and it's something I'll always have with me. 
but it's not something that I can really afford to spend too much time on anymore. And I understand you're actually going to be uh, demoing um, this coming May the 19th um, at Union Square. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, uh, yes. Um, I believe it's Taiwanese Heritage Week, and in San Francisco Union, Union Square there's a celebration, and I will be attending, and I guess uh, they've asked me to solve a couple of Rubik's Cubes here and there, so that's what I'm going to do. Okay, cool. And um, changing subjects, um, can I ask you a little bit about your experience on the uh, Beauty and the Geek show? Certainly. Uh, Beauty and the Geek was a very fun experience. It was something I filmed uh, during the senior year. At my senior year at Caltech, I kind of just um, dropped down to just one class and talked to the professor about it, and it worked out. It was a great experience, and I would... Um, I had a lot of fun, and I learned a lot. You know, how did the idea first come to you? Were you just watching TV, or was um, did you talk about this with other people and uh, sort of develop this idea to get on uh, the program? It was on a Rubik's Cube form, actually, that someone sent an email out that said, here, check out this new show. They're accepting ap applications. Tyson would be very good for it. And so uh, I took the guy's advice and applied for the show. Okay, cool. And, you know, what was the best um, learning experience from this program? I think the best learning experience from Beauty and Geek was really that everyone has, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you're passionate about it. And I think there's merit to what people care about. And um, just if you ha if you enjoy something, um, just, you know, if you pursue this, it, it, um, I guess just, you know, be happy with who you are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but also be open to how the world reacts and just what the world has to offer. Great. Uh, I, I guess it was uh, Richard Feynman who, I think one of his quotes was like, uh, love is the most important thing in the world. Richard Feynman is a brilliant man. <laughs> I mean, he, he really, his his lectures are just very insightful, and the way he communicates um, when he teaches is, is very, very amazing. Great. So do you, um, you know, foresee going back to um, academics or uh, astrophysics in the future, or do you just plan to uh, uh, work in a industry for a while? Not right now. Um, I'm not sure that I have the passion for astrophysics that my colleagues at Caltech had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm enjoying working right now, and it's something that I'll definitely do for a couple of years, uh, at least at this job. Well, you know, I don't really know what happens. I don't really know what will happen in the future. I guess I'll just see what opportunities come up. Um, but I'm having a great time right now. Cool, cool. I guess I'm running a little bit out of time here. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about um, you know, your experiences or um, yourself? Uh, you know, do you have any words of encouragement for people out there trying to solve uh, puzzles? Um, yeah, certainly. Uh, I definitely believe that anyone out there can solve a Rubik's Cube. Um, all it takes is just some patience. And really, it's not, an it's not an indication of how much intelligence someone has as much as it is an indication of how much determination and desire they have. Really, solving the Rubik's Cube is nothing more than following some instructions. And if you have the patience, sit down and figure out what's going on, you know, whether it's going on a website or, you know, just playing around with it, I really think anyone can do what I've done. Great. Um, well, I just want to thank you so much. Uh, it's been a real inspiration. Mr. Mao, thanks a lot. No problem. Thank you for having me. And we were just talking to Mr. Tyson Mao, world record holder of solving the Rubik's Cube, and former contestant on Beauty and the Geek.
And, well, it looks like we've come to the end of this week's show. Uh, Mr. Tyson Mao will be performing his spectacularly cool feat with the Rubik's Cube coming up May 19th, Saturday, at the Taiwanese Heritage Celebration uh, taking place in Union Square uh, at downtown San Francisco. That's right. May 19th, uh, Saturday. And so uh, make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology here at Berkeley Grocks. For those of you who would like to email us, you can uh, contact us at grocks at hotmail.com. You can also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Uh, for Berkeley Grocks, I'm Franklin, and stay tuned for more music. Thank you.